Good to see everybody. Um, this is it. This is week five of five. We're wrapping up a five-part series today, and if you weren't uh, with us, here's where we've been for the last four. We've been taking on some questions that people ask. Little kids ask, big kids ask, and here's the grown-up version of the questions that we've been wrestling with. In week one of the series, we wrestled with this question, if God is all-powerful, and if God wants to be known, why doesn't he just reveal himself in an undeniable way? Week two, here's what we wrestled with. If God is all-powerful and wants us to pray, why do so many of our prayers go unanswered or seemingly unanswered? That was week two. In week three, here was the question. If God is both great and good, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? And number four, our question from last week. How well do the biblical descriptions of heaven match the widely held beliefs? So that's where we've been. Here's where we're going today. Our final question of this series. Not the last question we'll ever take on, but our final one for this series. Why do we call Good Friday, Good Friday? I, um, this was a question that not, a couple years ago, um, Emma asked me this question. And when she asked me that question... It reminded me that when I was probably about the age you were when you asked the question, that I asked it too. Because Good Friday doesn't seem that good. It seems bad. Good Friday, if you're not familiar with the, with the church calendar, that's the day of the year where we commemorate that Jesus was crucified. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And the cross, there's a place to write this in your notes. The reason some of us, boy, is that the right name? The cross is as bad as bad gets. The cross is as bad as bad gets. Now, I want to illustrate this, why I would say a statement like that. And for those listening online, we, uh, what I'm doing right now is I've got an inflatable punching bag. And I'm going to put this in the back of the room here. And could you, Jake, just hold that? You, yeah, perfect. Hold that up. Um, okay, so now in the back of the room, we got this inflatable punching bag. Now, if I asked for a volunteer to go up and just punch the punching bag, I don't think there would be many moral cringes going on. Because this isn't a person, it's just a punching bag, this is what it was designed for. So I think if we ask someone to go and hit it, right, I, I don't think there'd be a problem with that. Now, let me get the next object, and this one stands up by itself. Anyone have one of these when they're growing up? Look at you, Laura, you did? Really? Did you punch it? Oh yeah! There's a side of you we haven't seen. She says, oh yeah, too. All right, now this one will stand by himself. All right, so this is Bozo the Clown. Now, there's probably some people, if we punch this, they would cheer because clowns creep a lot of folks out. But, but I bet there would be some people who would cringe a little bit more when someone goes up and punch that. Why? Because it looks a little bit more like a person. So there might be some people who would cheer, but there'd be others who'd say, ah, something just doesn't feel right to get a volunteer, especially in a church, to come up and and punch something that kind of looks like a person. So more people would be concerned about that. Well, I brought one of the Bobs back. Quick, quick Bob story. Bob makes a pe- Whoa! Bob has a mind of his own. Bob is shorter than he was when he started off today. All right, so Bob, quick Bob story. Um, Bob makes appearances from time to time, and so... Usually the day that we're going to be doing a message or the day before, I bring him over to our house out of storage. So I had to run to Home Depot yesterday, and so I took him out of the back of my truck, and I just left him in the garage. Well, I get this call from Laura. She's like, get him out of the garage! She had come out into the garage, and here was Bob, you know, out there. Anyway, so now we've, what we've got here is we've got one of our Bobs, and Bob's wearing what jersey? And not just the Vikings. This is Chris Carter. 
This is our beloved Chris Carter, Hall of Fame Chris Carter, right? Now, if I asked for a volunteer to come up and strike this object, cringe factor goes up, right? Bob was created to be struck, but now he's, he's wearing the jersey. And so to, to strike this, that you're disrespecting the jersey, right? So even though not everyone in this room would say this was a moral wrong, there would be some of us where we're like, ooh, this is worse than hitting Bozo. Because now you're disrespecting the jersey. So far, so good? So there's a progression going on here. We've got just the, the punching bag. No one really has a problem with hitting that. At least most people don't. You've got the clown. Maybe a couple more people are saying, okay, this doesn't feel quite as right. We've got others who are like, don't disrespect the jersey, for crying out loud. Well, let's pretend now that we brought a volunteer up from the audience. And we put them between Bob and the cross. And we had them stand here. And then I said, someone come up and punch them. Hard as you can. Okay. Would there be some people calling timeout, right? I would hope so. I'd hope there'd be some major red flags. <laughs> okay, there was like three people nodding. The rest of you are like, no, let's, let's see where you go with this. Yeah. We even got a guy volunteering in the back. All right, so, but we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. There's laws against that, right? And rightfully so. You don't just come up and punch another person because now you're insulting the dignity of a human, the intrinsic worth of a person. And that's a big jump. There's a big jump from Bob to a person. To inflict pain on a real person, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that, especially if it's for the purpose of just an illustration. Well, now let's make another jump. Let's make a jump from human to God. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be making the jump from person to God. The reason the cross was as bad as bad gets is you've got humanity driving nails through the hands and feet of the Son of God. And that's a bad thing. In fact, that's as bad as bad gets. If you guys could take our inflatables out of there, I'm going to move Bob back up to the front, and we're going to continue on with this discussion. Now, even as we continue today, I, I just want to let you know that I'm fully aware that we have the kids with us here. I'm fully aware that it's Labor Day weekend, and usually you get the combination of those two things. And so when you prepare, prepare a message, you keep the message short, you keep the message light. And we're going to talk about sin today. There's usually the message that I go in expecting to write, and then there's the message that when I'm done praying, saying, God, what do you want to say? The message that comes. And for a long time, we've been referring to the day when we would press into the idea of sin a little bit more. When we would press in, because I, I think about sin, especially in our culture, and we trivialize sin. We rarely talk about how significant it is, and besides saying, hey, it's very significant. So that someday I've been talking about, I feel like today's the day. But parents, don't worry, we won't get graphic or anything like that, but I feel like we need to press in today into this idea of sin and how significant it is. It was so significant that it required God's hands and feet being nailed to a cross. On Good Friday, we pause to remember the day when humanity drove nails into the hands and feet of the Son of God. And bad doesn't get any worse than that. And this Good Friday that we call it, as we call it, it's inseparable from this theological concept of sin. And sin is a loaded term. That's one of the reasons we, we need to spend a little extra time on it today. It is a loaded term. Its meaning is much more textured and much more nuanced than simply doing something that's really, really bad. And that's why I want to begin by calling your attention to something that a lot of people don't even realize that they're doing. 
And that's this. A lot of people don't even realize they're defining sin for themselves. Most people don't even realize they're doing that. We do that without realizing we're doing it. We put sin into these categories. That's a really bad one, and this one's not a really bad one. And we make all these categories, which may or may not be biblical. And as Christians, if you're a believer in Christ, you believe that's not your, our call. It is not our call to define sin. It is not our call to say this one's bad, this one's not bad. That's not our call. If you're a follower of Jesus, then, then you believe that God knows more than you do. You acknowledge that. And if God classifies something as sin, then we are to classify it as sin. And sometimes that involves a lot of hard work. It involves going, okay, here's what it says in the Bible. What was the situation? What was the context? Was that a particular thing for those particular people? Or does that apply today? Or does the principle apply today? Does it, does it apply as it did exactly today? There's all these other related questions. And sometimes it takes a lot of work. But at the end of the day, we, we go to the scriptures and we say, if God says this is sin, then this is sin. Instead of defining sin for ourselves, Christians look to the Bible to help us understand how God defines sin and what he says about it. And we're going to go into uh, this fall, later this fall, we're going to spend some extra time talking about how do you do that hard work of, of identifying when is it a principle, when is it you know, apples and apples. We're going to do that this fall. What I want to talk about today is the more general sense, paint a more general picture of, of, of how God defines sin and what he says about it. Well, Real quickly, here are four biblical words that we translate as sin in our English Bible. Here are three Hebrew words. The first one, it's interesting, all these are related, but they're not identical. There's, there's one Hebrew word where, that we translate as sin, and it's, it's kind of you're missing the mark. You're not quite right. You're not quite there. And then there's another Hebrew word that talks more about guilt or unrighteousness. And that one usually is, deals with um, cleanliness issues. Are you clean? Are you unclean in God's eyes? And then there's this other word for sin that's more of a, of a deliberate thing. It's a transgression. It's rebellion. It's, I know this is wrong. I'm doing it anyway. And then there's the Greek word, which has a range of meaning that summarizes kind of all of them. So those are the words we translate at sin. And as I was looking for a just good snapshot starting point definition, I love this one out of Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible. Here's how they give this really good, concise definition. I'm glad I didn't know this definition when I was in seminary. I might have been tempted to plagiarize it. They say this, Sin is a reality signifying the broken relationship between God and humanity. What a great summary, summary statement of sin. That's ultimately what it is. Sin is a reality that signifies the broken relationship between God and humanity. And then this next sentence, what they do is they encapsulate pretty much how sin appears in the Bible. Again, really good job here. The occasion by which this relationship breaks, the need to recognize this rupture, and the avenues for the salvation are detailed in endless situations throughout the scriptures. Summarizing his summary, sin is ultimately any thought, any action, any inaction that's out of line with God's expectations or character. And then when you go to the scriptures, what you find is the Bible is filled with example after example of what sin looks like in real life and the pain and problems associated with sin and then what God has done and continues to do to restore that which is broken. One of the best presentations I've ever seen that, that explains this and fleshes this out is actually a kid's book. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. How many of you guys have this one at home? Isn't it good? 
This is so good. I brought some extra copies, and they're here for you. So if you, um, especially if you've got kids, if you don't have a copy of this, while supplies last, we got them at the table. Please take one on your way out. Um, if we run out, you can either let me know or you can just find them on Amazon. This book does such a good job of just explaining, here's what God intended, here's what happened, and now here's what God did to restore what's broken and rescue and save us. And so what I want to do, actually, is I just want to read um, how, how they start things out from this uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, how, how they describe the world before sin came in. And this is so good, and I feel it really dovetails well with what we talked about last week with heaven. Here we go. This is the beginning of Perfect Home. It's funny. Um, a couple extra people this week said, hey, loved your sermon. I'm like, well, I'll just have to read children's books more often, I guess. That, that would help the message. All right, here we go. It, they say this. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing to hear, nothing to feel, nothing to see. Only emptiness and darkness. And nothing but nothing. But God was there. And God had a wonderful plan. I'll take this emptiness, God said, and I'll fill it up. Out of the darkness, I'm going to make light. And out of nothing, I'm going to make everything. Like a mommy bird flutters her wings over her eggs to keep her babies or help her babies hatch. God hovered over the deep, silent darkness. He was making life happen. God spoke. That's all. And whatever he said, it happened. God said, hello, light. And light shone into the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. You're good, God said. And they were. Then God said, hello, sea, hello, sky. And a great space opened up wide and deep and high. You're good, God said. And they were. And then God said, hello, land. And there, splashing up through the oceans, came cliffs and mountains and sandy beaches. You're good, God said. And they were. Hello, trees, God said. Hello, grass and flowers. And everything, everywhere, burst into life. He made buds bud and shoots shoot and flowers flower. You're good, God said. And they were. Hello, stars, God said. Hello, sun. Hello, moon. And whizzing into the darkness came fiery globes, spinning round and around, whirling orange and purple and golden planets. You're good, God said. Hello, birds, God said. And with a fluttering and flapping and chirping and singing, birds filled the skies. Hello, fish, God said. And with a darting and dashing and wriggling and splashing, fish filled the seas. You're good, God said. And they were. Then God said, hello, animals. And everyone came out to play. Love that sentence. Everyone came out to play. The earth was filled with noisy noises, growling and gobbling and snapping and snorting and happy skerfuffling. Shout out to uh, Dr. Seuss. All right, you're good, God said, and they were. God saw all that he had made, and he loved them. And they were lovely because he loved them. But God saved the best for last. From the beginning, God had a shining dream in his heart. Listen to this dream. He would make people to share his forever happiness. They would be his children, and the world would be their perfect home. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve. And when they first opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all of his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind in the trees and the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness. Nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. Does that sound at all like heaven? It sounds a lot like heaven. And God looked at everything he said, and he said, perfect, and it was all the stars and the mountains and the oceans and galaxies and everything were nothing 
compared to how much God loved his children. He would move, listen to this, he would move heaven and earth to be near them. Always, whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always love them. And so it was that the wonderful love story began. Isn't that good? So good. Well, this book tells the story beneath all the other stories of the Bible. The story of a God who created this world. And then what happened next? And what God did to bring us back. That what we just read there, and the reason I had us, had us listen to this part, is I think she does such a good job in her book of describing the life that God has for us. The Bible uses the word shalom to describe it. How does this relate to sin? Sin undermines shalom. Sin undermines shalom. What we're going to do briefly now is we're going to take a quick look at what sin is and what sin does. Let's start with what sin is. Today is one of those days where instead of having one verse that we really dig into, I'm just trying to give a big overview here of of some of the things that the Bible says. And this is a partial list, all three slides of it. What sin is, here are some of the things we see in the Bible as we look at what sin is and how the Bible refers to sin. We find that all of us have sinned. It's something that we've all done. Sin is deliberate disobedience. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. The devising of folly is sin, whatever that means. Hostility towards God is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. Arrogance and pride are sin. Unfulfilled vows to God are sin. Sin is also this. We can have sinful thoughts. We can sin against each other. We can sin against the Lord. We can sin against our own bodies. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it sins. Did you hear that one? If there's something that's right that you're supposed to do and you don't do it, that's sin. There's also the sins of what we don't do. What sin is? Those around us can cause us to sin. Our leaders can cause us to sin. Sin can apparently seek us out. It is, impo- it is possible. It is possible to sin unintentionally. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one point is guilty of breaking how much of it? All of it. That's just a partial list of what sin is. Do you see, do you see why the Bible can rightly say, if this is the definition, all have sinned? of sin. And that's a big deal. Why? Let's take a partial look at what the Bible says sin does. And it doesn't just say this sin does it, the really big sins. It says sin does this. Sin separates us from God. Sin is detestable in God's sight. Sin provokes God's anger. Sin provokes God's jealousy. Sin provokes God's wrath. Sin defiles us. Sin enslaves us. Sin deceives us. Sin creates a debt that is beyond our capacity to pay. Sin is like marital unfaithfulness, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And look at this last one. We're so used to thinking so individualistic in our culture. Sin can affect future generations. Our sins can affect future generations. Well, you consider how easy it is to sin. You consider just how serious sin is in God's sight. Perhaps you can agree with this ancient petition. And and if you have your Bible, let's open up to it. Here's what one person, uh, we refer to these folks as psalmists because we call these the psalms. Here's what one of the psalmists writes when it comes to sin and, and, and how they feel about it. 
This is Psalm 131 through 3. I want to let you know, too, we believe so much into this in this book. We believe there is no other book like this. And, and so we want to make it as available as we can. We always keep a stack of them at either of those tables by the door. They're there for you. And they're there as a gift. So you don't have to sign anything or even let us know. Please take one if you don't have a Bible at home. All right, Psalm 130. The psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you. Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? I think this person has a, has a fairly good grasp of the fact that they've sinned and what a big deal it is that they've sinned. Well, we've all sinned. And, and how do we make things right? It's interesting when you, when you do some comparative studies between religions, it is fascinating to see how much common ground there is. And it, almost every people group that's ever lived wrestles with this question. Not to necessarily to the God we believe, we believe in, but with a sense of, it seems as though, I think most people are born with a sense of, it seems as though we can offend supernatural beings. And what do we do when we do that? Um, we, this last week, saw this very vividly. This last week, we took my mom to that exhibit at the Science Museum with the Mayans. Has anyone else been there yet to see? Some of you have seen that? Um, so you'll recognize some of these things. They have an exhibit, and it was, it was fascinating. If we can go to the next slide, um, you got to actually see objects like this, like this altar of theirs, and how they would try to make things right with their gods. And for me, the most moving part of that exhibit was in that, that cave, that one, um, you, you sit down, and you can kind of watch this little demonstration in front of you. And they talked about how the Mayans believed that a cave was a place where you could access the other world easier, that somehow it was a thinner place between this world and the next. And so they were having this massive drought, and, and people they were, were, were dying off, and, and people were leaving their great cities. And so these folks gathered together, and they said, what can we do? We've we, we got to do something about this. We have to get these gods to help us. And so you found these articles. They, they, they talked about this cave where they found all these articles outside at the entrance of the cave where they had tried to make things right with their God. They had, they had tried all these rituals, and they, they tried bringing all kinds of things, and it didn't work. And so they went deeper into the cave, and they tried what they thought was a greater sacrifice, and they actually were cutting themselves, thinking, if we shed our blood, perhaps now the gods will listen to us. And you can find these articles deeper into the cave where these people were cutting themselves, thinking, now maybe the gods will listen to us. But nothing happened. And then they went deeper. They explored deeper into this cave, and they found human remains. Where these people who were so desperate for their gods to, to, to respond to them thought, maybe if we sacrifice some of our own or our enemies or something, maybe that'll work. And it didn't work. It didn't work. They looked to their own sacrifices to save them, but their hope was in vain. When you consider how prevalent sin is, when you consider how serious sin is, there's only one sacrifice that's powerful enough to make things right, and it's not one that we can offer. And that's what makes Good Friday good. I'd encourage you to write this down. The cross was as good as good gets. Some of you are waiting for that one. When you heard the bad part, you're like, what? What do you mean the cross is bad? The cross is bad because of our part in it. Humanity driving nails into the Son of God. The cross is good because of God's part in it. 
And his good is as good as good gets. I want to go back to the Jesus Storybook Bible one more time. And what this section is that we're going to read right now is the account of sin entering into the world. And I want to tell you right now, if you're a theologian, you're just going to have to let go of some of the particulars. You know, you can rip things apart because she's writing a kid's book, right? But listen to how she words what was and what happened. And it helps us, I think, have a much better understanding of how good God's sacrifice was. Here it goes. This, this section is called The Terrible Lie. Adam and Eve lived happily together in their beautiful new home, and everything was perfect for a while, until the day when everything went wrong. God had a horrible enemy. His name was Satan. Satan had once been the most beautiful angel, but he didn't want to be just an angel. He wanted to be God. He grew proud and evil and full of hate, and God had to send him out of heaven. Satan was seething with anger and looking for a way to hurt God. He wanted to stop God's plan, stop the love story right there. So he disguised himself as a snake and waited in the garden. Now God had given Adam and Eve one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them. Because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him. Any of that going on these days? They would think they didn't need him. They would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there's no such thing as happiness without him. And life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as a snake saw his chance, he slithered up silently to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's word hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered, and suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked up the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too, and a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, maybe God doesn't love And it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. For the first time, a dove flew away from Adam's hand. A deer darted into a thicket. It was as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong. And they didn't want anyone to see them, so they hid. Later that evening, as God was taking his walk, he called to them, Children? Usually Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice. They would run to him, but this time they ran away from him. They hid in the shadows. Where are you? God called. Hiding, Adam said. We're afraid of you. Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? God asked them. Adam said, Eve made me do it. What have you done, God asked. Eve said, serpent made me do it. And a terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken one rule. They had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel, to come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. You you see, sin, sin had come into God's perfect world, and it wouldn't leave. God's children would always be running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. 
God couldn't let his children live forever. Not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave this garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It is not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them and sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. In another story, it would all be over. And that would have been the end. Not this story. Not this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day, he would get his children back. One day, he would make the world their perfect home again. One day, he would wipe every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. And although they would forget him and run from him, Deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children longing for their home. Before they left the garden, listen to this. God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I will rid the sin and darkness and sadness and let you in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day God himself would come. And he did. And we nailed him to a cross. But because of that cross, take a look at this. Here's just a sampling of what happened on that cross. If we believe the Bible to be true, then this is what happened through the cross and the resurrection. The guilty in this sacrifice, because of the sacrifice, they are forgiven. The defiled are cleansed. The condemned are saved. Those who were God's enemies are reconciled. Those who were held captive have been ransomed. Those who were once dead are now alive. Slaves have been set free. We've been justified. We've been redeemed. We've been adopted as God's sons and daughters. That's what we commemorate on Good Friday. That's what makes Good Friday good. That's also what we commemorate when we gather for communion. We commemorate that when we were still sinners with no hope, no hope of saving ourselves through any action we could do, God made it possible for that which was broken to be restored through his death and resurrection. Please write this one down. If you haven't written down the other ones, please write this down. God was able. Are you willing? God was able to fix things. Are you willing to let him fix things for you? Almost every people group to ever walk the planet has what's called a theory of atonement. They wouldn't call it that necessarily, but that's what it is. By that, I mean almost every people group that's ever lived believes you have to account for wrong somehow. Wrong is wrong. You have to account for it somehow. And some people groups think, okay, the way you account for it, or even some people, individuals, do more good than bad. You do more good than good, you're good. No, do more good than bad, you're good. Did I get that one right? Do more good than bad, you're good. That's what some people believe. That's how you, you atone for your sins. Other people believe that, that if you die and you weren't good enough or, or were bad, you go backwards. Reincarnation, you go backwards. 
But if you were good, then you can move forward. That's why some people wrestle with this idea of atonement. Then other people, they trust in prayers, or they trust in rituals, or they trust in sacrifices, or they trust in some pilgrimage to the right place. If I do that, they think, then I can make things right. Christians see things very differently. We, we, we believe we can't make it right. We can't make it right. What we did is too big of a deal. But God is able. He was able to make things right. And are we willing to receive then his salvation as a gift? Now let me say this very clearly because I think this can be misrepresented. This gift is a gift that you can refuse and not you don't have to necessarily say it refuse it by saying I refuse it. Here's a way you can refuse it according to the Bible. The Bible says if you keep sinning, if you deliberately keep sinning. As in I know this is wrong, I'm going to keep doing this anyway. Maybe I'll do all these things right, but this area I'm going to do it my way. John 3:36, Hebrews 10:26 and elsewhere that says if you deliberately keep doing that, that's rejecting the gift. What does receiving the gift look like? It looks like saying, God, you get to define right and wrong. I don't. And I'm not going to always do what's right. I'll try my best, but I'm not always going to do it. And when I fail, I will say I'm sorry, as sincere as I can. And with your help, I'll try to turn and do what's right. That's receiving the gift. And then we let God lead. We say, God, would you give me a new heart and a new mind, one that will help me to see things your way, and one that is set on your way. And listen to, to what God said, this invitation. As we do that, we begin to live as his servants. All these are scriptural. His servants, his followers, his ambassadors, his priests. This one's even more amazing. His friends. And this one tops that. I'm out of fingers, but I'll add one here. Family. He invites us into his family. He invites all who, who would say, Thank you for this gift. I receive it where you lead. I will follow what you say I will do through your guidance and the power of your Holy Spirit. Every month, what we try to do is offer, um, sometimes more than once a month, but usually at least once a month, we try to offer this opportunity that's kind of, if some of you grew up with an understanding of an altar call, it's kind of like that, the way we do our communion. Um, what communion is, if you're not familiar with it, on the back of your notes, we wrote down some things about it, but... But in a nutshell, what it is, it's, it's a holy form of communion. Communion is just a relationship word. Communion means intimate communion, communion or intimate communication. And, and, and what we're doing here is, is we're coming to God. And, and we're, what makes this form of communion holy or set apart is that we pause to remember the price that Jesus paid on our behalf. And then we recommit ourselves to saying, I'm here, I'm fully yours. So the way we do it here is we don't have ushers. Um, instead, we'll be singing two songs, and, and first we'll have the servers come up, and I'll, I'll, I'll serve them communion, and then one team will go to that side, and one team will go to this side, and then we just encourage you um, to make a deliberate decision to say, you know what, perhaps you're a person who's already a follower of Jesus. It just gives you a chance to reflect and say, God, where have I gotten off path? Thank you for your patience with me. Help me to get back on path. I'm sorry for wandering off. I'm back. For some of us, that's what we do. For some of you, that might be the first time where you're like, okay, God, this is it. Today, I'm all yours. As best I can, I need your help, but I'm all yours. That one area where I've been saying no to you, today I say yes. And I'm going to need your help. I need the help of your people. But here we go. And we encourage you to take that step with us as well. 
Um, uh, with with uh, communion um, today, what was I going to say on this? Uh, oh, yeah, I know what I was going to say. In preparation, one of the things that we've been doing is we have some prayers that we all say together because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And one of the ways we start is by just praying some prayers together so that you hear other voices saying the same thing that you might be thinking or feeling. And then we encourage you to, to make it individual from there. So would you please, as the worship band comes up, would you please join me in praying um, these prayers uh, together? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Let me pray. Father, we, we pray right now that you would take this time and make it holy. We pray that you would take these elements and make them for us, your body and your blood. Lord, we, we thank you of this reminder of what you did for us. Lord, we pray right now that you'll help it to sink in, that this wouldn't just be going through the motions, but we would pause to really reflect on this, this sacrifice that you made on our behalf that's far too wonderful for us to fully comprehend. And Lord, we also, as your scripture says, we look forward to the day when you come back you make all things new and you make all things right. Help us to persevere between the now and then. Help us to live this out, to be your hands and feet to this world. Lord, we pray that you would draw people to yourself right now. Draw those of us back who, who desire to follow you, but we get lost and we listen to serpents and we eat apples and we do all kinds of things. Lord, may this be a time now where we we reflect on that, we bring it back to you, and we ask for you to lead and guide us and sustain us as we go out from this place. And Lord, we pray especially for those who have never fully surrendered to you before, Lord, that, that you would draw them as well. That you would paint a picture of who you are that is true and not the one that the world paints of you. That's just a caricature. This God who is both almighty extremely personal, and, and Lord, we pray that you would draw all people to yourself. So Holy Spirit, come, descend on us. Speak to us now as individuals, and help us to respond as such as well. And Lord, as one last act of solidarity before we now begin this process of individually coming and responding to you, we pray this prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever.